Welcome to Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast where we dismantle the media misinformation that floods our news feeds all week long. The media tries to mislead you literally every day, but each episode of this podcast will leave you more equipped to correctly interpret the news and spot their deception quicker than before. This is Luke Taylor, an Austereologist scholar who will be your host in this roundup of the past week or two of fake news. I think it's been about a week and a half since my last episode, so we're catching up on a few things. You know, honestly, nothing really groundbreaking this time. A few news stories I would like to share with you. Um, I really just kind of wanted to get on here and yak about a couple things. So I want to start off today talking about some AI, AI stuff. I've been wanting to do a kind of a follow-up to my previous episode about AI that I did a few months back. And so um, if you didn't catch that one, I think you should go listen to that um, just because I think it has some helpful information. But um, on today's episode, I just want to follow up. What I said last time about AI was that I think it's just about to get harder than ever to know what's real. I think we're going to start seeing people get fooled a lot more than usual. And uh, I'll tell you one thing that I think fooled all of us. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you about that in just a minute. Also, I got some movie movie reviews I want to do just because it's summer movie season. I haven't talked much about movies uh, and, I, and I, I'll talk about why I haven't talked much about movies, but we'll get into that in a little bit, too. So, hey, thanks for tuning in to the Fake News Podcast. We're going to do that. And then maybe just some news stories that you might have missed as we get as we wrap up at the end. So let's just not delay. Let's get into it. Um, as I was saying, there's some stuff about AI that it's just getting harder and harder to know what is real. And so there is an AI. I'm sorry. There is a Twitter account named Erica Marsh. And if you go to Erica Marsh's page, she claimed to be a liberal activist. She claimed to be a former campaigner or campaign staffer for um, the Obama or the Biden administration. So basically, um, and she's a young girl. If you look at her profile picture on Twitter, young lady, and um, I guess had a pretty popular account on Twitter, 130,000 followers. Okay. I, I've cracked 50 in the past few weeks. <laughs> so if you don't follow me, go to at fake news, Luke, and that's where you can find me on there. Um, I don't have Erica Marsh's following. She had 130,000 followers. And they regular regularly retweeted her things and considered her somewhat an authority when it came to politics. Um, she tweeted out something that was very popular uh, right after the Supreme Court decided to strike down um, affirmative action uh, back at uh, the when the rulings were coming out. I guess this was back in June. And the Supreme Court put out a decision that said colleges are not allowed to discriminate on the basis of race. Colleges are not allowed to be racist anymore whenever they select who gets to go to college. And so she didn't like that. She thought that black people should get preferential treatment. And she thought that Asian people should be discriminated against whenever it came to getting into college. And so she was angry about that. She tweets, today's Supreme Court decision is a direct attack on black people. No black person will be able to succeed in a merit-based system, which is exactly why affirmative action-based programs were needed. Today's decision was a travesty. And so this got a lot of attention when she tweeted this out, saying no black person will be able to succeed in a merit-based system. Basically, that's a, just another way of saying black people are not competent enough to get into college based on their grades, based on their skills. Um, no black person can succeed if we just let everyone have a fair shot. She says that's why we need affirmative action. So that this got a lot of retweets because a lot of uh, conservatives were then saying, wow, look at what this racist Democrat is saying. This shows that Democrats are the real racists because this is what they think of black people. They think they need affirmative action just to get anywhere in life and can't do it on, can't do it through hard work and, and all that the way everyone else does. So th this was, this was, um, picked up by, and I retweeted it myself on my page. I, I retweeted this cause I'm like, wow, this is what a terrible thing to say, but it shows exactly the liberal mindset whenever it comes to black people. Okay, the twist, in case, you know, for based on the setup, you probably already know where this is going. This was not a real person. This was actually, um, so her image is this picture of a young girl. Her, her profile picture on Twitter um, was not a real person. This was something that was generated in AI. And Erica Marsh, who's this person with 130,000 followers, liberal activist, claimed to have worked on like the Biden campaign and helped get him elected, she is not a real person. So this was all completely a farce. Um, this was not even a real person. And yet she got up to 130,000 followers on Twitter before anyone caught on to this. 
It was only when she tweeted this racist thing. Do I, and I, am I saying AI wrote the tweet? Some secret, you know, somebody wrote that tweet. I, it probably wasn't AI. It was probably just a person who made this fake account and used, you know, fake name, fake credentials, uh, a fake, totally AI generated image to create this account. And it turns out this was all just a, a made up person who didn't even exist. There is no Erica Marsh, or at least not an Erica Marsh who fits this description and goes along with this profile account. So just a completely fake person meant to go out there and tweet, tweet liberal things to get liberals, you know, excited and retweeting her, seeing her as an authority on politics, wasn't even a real person. So I found that I found that a little bit spooky, a little bit interesting. The only reason people caught on to it is because she tweeted this, and I say she could have been he could have been a robot for all we know, but tweeted this racist statement. And all of a sudden, all the spotlight went on her and it turned out that she was not a real person. So um, that was one thing that came up here lately. And here's another one. Um, There is this woman who had a freak out moment on an airplane. The plane was not in the air, I believe. I, I don't believe it was in the air at the time that this happened. But this woman claims that the person sitting next to her on the plane was like a lizard person or a reptile person. You know, she from what I could tell, looked like she had some kind of mental breakdown on the plane and became um, delirious or something. And so she was convinced that somebody else on the plane was a reptile. And she goes stomping off the plane and she's screaming at all the passengers. You know, I'm getting off because that person over there is not real. I I, I can't play the clip because there's a lot of profanity in it. She was cussing up a storm on her way off this airplane. But she wanted to let everybody know on her way off that there's a person on the airplane who's like a reptile or something. He's not he's a lizard person, I think, is what she said and said he is not a real person. And so that's just, you know, then that got people thinking, well, was there some kind of alien on the plane? Um, Some kind of, you know, what, what exactly did she see? That's what everybody wants to know. What did she see? And so the the famous quote that goes along with her is she says that, uh, well, I can't say the word. I'm not going to say the word, but she says, I'll very much sanitize it here. She, she says that person is not real. And then she stomps off the plane and this was caught on camera. And so here's the thing. Here's why I'm talking about this. Um, nobody can seem to find out who this woman was. You know, in, in the modern world, if you get your picture taken, if there's a video of you, people hear your voice, they see you moving, they can figure out who you are pretty quick. You know, there's somebody who knows you, who recognizes you. Your name gets out there. You got reporters knocking on your door. You you know, your social media accounts, you know, posted for public to see all that stuff. People find out who you are pretty quickly if you become if you do something that makes you blow up and go viral on social media. Do people still say go viral? I don't know if I hear that anymore, but hopefully you know what I mean. It means your your um, persona just like explodes on the scene. You become a meme or something. They call it going viral. That's what they called it, you know, when I was your age. But you know, I don't know what they call it nowadays. But anyway, so when you bl- when you do something that makes you blow up on social media, um, people find out who you are pretty quick, and they start harassing you and all that until it dies down. Anyway, what's been interesting about this story is no one knows who she was. This woman having the freak out on the plane, the woman with the famous quote, "That person is not real." Well, here's the thing: was she real? Was that did this incident really happen or was all this just a hoax? You know, was all this just something that somebody made up? Was she a computer generated person? Was this all was this whole cell phone video thing? Was this just a computer generated image? Something that didn't actually happen? Um, You know, and I don't I don't know. Maybe there's news stories about it or something, but it's 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 very kind of spooky how nobody can seem to find out who this woman was and find out what her story is. You know, do a follow up with her. What do you think happened on that airplane? Why did you say that this person wasn't real? What made you think they were a lizard person? For some reason, they can't find out who she is and ask her these questions. So find it a little bit suspicious. It just makes me wonder, was that some kind of psyop? Was that some kind of thing just to confuse the populace and try to deceive them with like a computer generated image or something? You know, who knows? Maybe we'll find her one of these days. Maybe, you know, we'll see. Um, AI is changing things. And it's making the world a lot more confusing and hard to know what is real. Uh, as AI started to explode on the scene, my friend Daniel Moore, he, he pointed this story out to me that said a former Google CEO has warned that artificial intelligence could be used to kill people in the future. <laughs> That's a little bit dramatic. That's the headline on this story. 
But it's talking about the former CEO of Google. He's not the current CEO, but Eric Schmidt, he was two decades at in charge of Google. Um, so a big part of the success of the Google platform, he's warning everybody that AI is just too dangerous. He says it's growing too fast. And then in the past year, the way things have exploded with artificial intelligence, he says, we're, we're creating a monster that we can't control. So it says Eric Schmidt, who spent two decades at the helm of the search giant, told a gathering of senior executives Wednesday, this story is a few months old. He said that he believes AI presents an existential risk for humanity defined as many, many people harmed or killed. That's how he defines an existential risk. He says many, many people are going to be harmed or killed by this explosion of new technology. The software PhD said the technology, which Google is helping spearhead through its relatively primitive barred chatbot system, could be misused by evil people when it becomes more advanced. So he's warning us that this AI thing has grown too far, too fast, it's too powerful, and once the bad people get a hold of it, that's whenever we're really in trouble. You know, there's there's jokes about whether AI is going to take over the world, and you kind of see why the the jokes they're, they're not always so jokingly made. Um that you know, when you talk to an AI chatbot, when you talk to one of these things, they are so lifelike and human-like and smart. I mean, I was ty- I was typing something to one the other day, totally misspelled a word. It didn't slow it down for a moment. It knew exactly what I was trying to say, even though I wasn't being grammatically and spelling. I wasn't doing that correctly. I wasn't spelling correctly, but it knew exactly what I was trying to say. And that just, that freaks me out more than anything. You know, you don't even have to, it's, it's not like the Siri of before. You know, with Siri, you have to say things so slowly and precisely or Siri totally misunderstands what you're talking about. I think Siri's gotten worse over the years. I think, you know, she's getting <laughs> she's getting old or something. Her hearing's going out. I don't know, but uh, well, I'll talk about that in a moment. But here's the thing. People worry about AI taking over the world because when you talk to these AIs, they seem so hyper-intelligent, so intuitive that they get to know you and they understand what, even if you don't say it right, they know what you're trying to say. That's creepy to me. So yes, they are they're almost like they're approaching sentience. Are they going to take over the world? That's not what scares me when it comes to AI. I do not have a one fear at all about AI trying to take over. Oh, let me put it another way. AI is definitely going to take over the world. But what it comes down to is who is controlling the AI. That's the part that scares me. I should I should say it that way. Am I worried about AI taking over the world? Yes, but no. I'm not worried about AI. I'm worried about who is controlling the AI because AI is not going to go beyond what humans program it to do. So it's not the AI that scares me. It's the human programmers that scare me. What they're going to tell AI to tell us to do is basically what I'm, I don't know if scared is the word I want to use, concerned. I'll just say concerned for now. I'm concerned at how people are going to become so reliant on this artificial intelligence technology. It's going to become such an everyday use thing for us probably every hour use for us. Uh, But I'm worried about the subtle things, or maybe the not so subtle things, that it will be programmed to tell us is true. That's that's where the concern comes in for me. That's why I keep the physical dictionary on the desk, okay? When I'm working on these lessons, I keep the physical dictionary there because anything that's in the the digital realm, anything on the internet, it can be rewritten. It can be changed without you knowing. If we don't have the physical hard copy, we can't be sure that it's trustworthy and true. So anyway, uh, I said I'd talk about Siri for a moment. Have you just noticed when you use Google, when you use Siri, they just seem to suck lately. They're just like, they're getting really crummy. They're just becoming almost unusable. I can tell Siri to do one thing and she will completely hear something else. I'm like, what is going on with you, Siri? Um, I have a theory about that. I it was It's one of two things. Like, I think perhaps Apple is about to replace Siri and they're about to put something much, much more advanced out there. So like some kind of new AI, it might be Siri 2.0. It might still have the name Siri, but it's about to, I think because of the explosion of AI, at one point, Siri was just like the hottest new thing on the block. Um, Now she needs to get hearing aids and she's, you know, hobbling down the block with a walker. Siri is barely, barely hanging in there. I don't even use Siri anymore unless I absolutely have to. <laughs> She's just become totally useless. Google. I can't find about anything with Google anymore. I'm like, what is going on with Google? So I have a theory about this. I think these those two companies in particular, I bet they're about to roll out something to kind of get back out there as far as being a tech giant. 
and have their own advanced AI that is much more helpful than their current state of Siri and what Google is. So I think the I think all of that is about to get revamped. And so Google and Siri are sucking right now, either because they've just stopped developing those platforms and they're kind of just deteriorating due to not being updated as much. It could be that. They could be intentionally sabotaging Siri, intentionally sabotaging Google, so that whenever they roll out the new platforms at some point, then all of a sudden we can be like, whoa, hey, like this is way better than the old Google. Well, maybe they're just sabotaging current Google so that the new Google, the new Siri that they roll out is going to be much more impressive in comparison. That's kind of my theory on where that's going. So anyway, there's some thoughts on AI. That's basically all I wanted to update you on. Uh, Just continue to keep your eye on that and continue to just trust nothing. I think what we're seeing now is even when they put out an image or a video, you just can't be sure that it's real. It used to be, you know, Okay, I need to pick the phrase when I was growing up, pick sir, it didn't happen. Okay, when I was your age, that's what that's what the kids used to say. We say picks or it didn't happen. We want to see pictures or we didn't believe that it was true. That's what the internet lingo was. <laughs> well, now the pics aren't good enough anymore either. I like I think I have to see it with my own eyes. I have to actually be there or I can't totally trust that what you're telling me happened, happened. You can't trust a photo anymore. Might not even be able to trust video much longer either. I, I'm not convinced that the, the woman having the freak out on the airplane, I'm not convinced that that wasn't some kind of psyop by by the government or somebody to see what they could convince us is true. You know, I I have I have doubts about whether that incident actually happened. So, just my thoughts there. Let's do some. Let's do some. I'm going to get a drink. Okay, give me a moment to get a drink, and then we'll come back and we'll do some movie reviews. We're going to talk about uh, this new Mission Impossible and some other films that just came out. Our lives are the sum of our choices. And we cannot escape the past. Ethan, this mission of yours is gonna cost you dearly. The world is changing. Truth is vanishing. War is coming. Well, here we are in July. You know, typically when I was, you know, I was like, okay, I finally can drive. I finally have a job. I finally have money. I'm going to the movies. <laughs> you know, this was like my thing that I used to love to do in the summer. Every week or two, I was going out to the movies to see another film, go with a friend, go see it by myself. Go, You know, I'd like, I'd go see it by myself opening night. If it was good enough, I'd go see it again with a friend. I, you know, I was, this was just my thing. This is what I would do in the summer. <laughs> like when, when uh, Avengers came out, I saw it three times in the theaters. So this is something I used to just love to do in this season of the year. As I've kind of lamented on this podcast, movies just aren't as good these days as they used to be. And I've barely been to the theaters this year. It just still, it blows me away that I've b- barely been going. Like when, when the Marvel movies were big, I saw every single one of those opening weekend from Iron Man all the way to Endgame. I saw them all opening weekend. And then after COVID, it's just like everything seemed to go downhill. Nothing's worth going. I like I go, I get irritated that I even spent money to go see some of these things. (laughs) So I haven't, I don't think I've been, I saw the new Guardians of the Galaxy. I haven't been to the theaters other than that this summer. That's just really weird for me. Okay. That's how I'm setting all this up. Um, If you don't want to hear a few movie reviews about some stuff I've seen lately, Look at the show notes. I put timestamps in. You can skip to the next section and skip to the closing thoughts for the day or, or whatever, whatever you want to hear about. I mean, that's why I put the show notes in. You can skip something if you don't want to hear it. But I, here's the thing. I actually saw three new films of the year just this past week. Um, the first one was Mission Impossible number seven. It's called Dead Reckoning. Uh, so this is the... Uh, the Actually, it's just Dead Reckoning Part 1. This is not the end of the story. There's like going to be a Part 2 next year or something that wraps the whole thing up. But anyway, I saw the new Mission Impossible. Um, hey, I, here's why I haven't been to the movies till now. Like, most stuff is just not worth seeing nowadays. I hate going to the movies and seeing two blobs of CGI fight each other for the entire third act of a film. That just gets boring to me to see for the hundredth time. So, you know, I'm kind of sick of the CGI fests. Um, I just, I find myself... With these 
with these movies where the climax just goes on and on and hey i'm a guy i like action movies but there comes a point where it's just like enough (laughs) it was kind of like that with this film too it didn't have all the cgi you know tom cruise jumps out an airplane or i guess in the movie he jumps off a cliff with a parachute on a motorcycle you know it's awesome that he actually did that it does look amazing to see him sailing through the air above this big valley and pop out his parachute and you know the camera gets right up in his face sometimes and it's because he actually did do the um except for some of it they he jumped out of an airplane or a helicopter but the cameraman follows him down and shows him sailing through the air you know he actually does these things it does look amazing so i give them major props for the practical effects in the movie the the non-stop action it, it is really impressive action but it does just get a little bit unrelenting sometimes. <laughs> just got unrelenting action sequence after action sequence. It's like, okay, I need a little bit more than that. I need a little bit of like time to just get to know the characters a little bit. A little bit of time just to hear them talk about everything that's going on. Um, and the writing wasn't that great when they were talking. So that it, overall, I'd say this was a step down from some of the previous entries in the franchise. It's one of the most consistently great action franchises out there. Dead Reckoning is a good movie. I mean, you're, you're, gonna, you're not going to watch it and be disappointed. It's not going to feel like a waste of time. It's a little bit too long, but, you know, it's a good movie. You're going to want to see it. Um, if, you, if you're not a big fan of Mission Impossible, wait for the next one to come out and just watch them all at once. Just wrap it all up. I didn't like how they handled some of the characters this time, especially the female characters. That was just a kind of a letdown for me, how they handed, handled them. And as I mentioned, this, the, it had an embarrassingly bad script. Um, I, so the villain of the movie is artificial intelligence. That's actually kind of an interesting that that was kind of an interesting angle um, It's similar to that movie Eagle Eye that came out like over a decade ago. I, that movie got a lot of hate. I liked Eagle Eye. I thought it was kind of an interesting story that was about an evil AI trying to re- <laughs> control the world, basically. And that was really the, the villain of this movie. And it felt especially timely because of everything I was talking about at the start. This was a movie about how dangerous AI could be if it had the opportunity to like get into our computer systems of all of our governments and how it could basically take over the world if it tried to do that. So a lot of the dangers that I've been pointing out here lately, you know, that AI can monitor anything you do, you can't really hide from it. Um, That's all present in the film. And so that was, that was interesting and it felt very timely because I know they work on these movies for years. It's amazing how it comes out right now when that's such a relevant issue to to bring out in a movie so that was cool but as i said the script was terrible at points (laughs) just the dialogue was just like cringy bad and i was waiting for the twist where it was going to reveal that like the human characters that some of them were being controlled by the ai (laughs) i was i was honestly expecting they were going to do a twist where like some of the characters were actually robots or something because to me that would have made more sense that would have made like that would have tied things together for why their dialogue was so robotic and lame fake sounding it didn't sound at all like regular people talking and so that that was a little bit distracting that twist never comes in the movie that was it was just bad writing so anyway that's my opinion on dead reckoning not as great as probably the last three or four mission impossible movies still really good it's like a consistently good franchise but this one just felt like it was good but it wasn't it didn't feel fresh i was just watching i was kind of like man i feel like i've seen I've seen a train sequence before in these movies. You know, I've seen him jump out of planes before and do these long jumps. And I mean, the the parachuting thing I mentioned, it was really cool. They just did that in the last film. So it's kind of like that. That kind of felt repetitive. The villains weren't anything super exciting this time around. I didn't like how they handled some of the characters. So step down compared to some of the recent ones. I hope they just knock it out of the park and give a great finale in that last movie that they're working on. Um, Another film that I saw last week was this new Christopher Nolan movie, Oppenheimer. I want to just play the trailer for that. I'll play, I'll play a minute or two of the trailer from that movie. This is a national emergency. Detonator charge. We're in a race against the Nazis. And I know what it means. If the Nazis have a bomb. They have a 12-month head start. 18. How could you possibly know that? We've got one hope. 
All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. Secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. Let's go recruit some scientists. Build a town, build it fast. If we don't let scientists bring their families, we'll never get the best. Why would we go to the middle of nowhere for who knows how long? Why? Why? How about because this is the most important thing to ever happen in the history of the world? You're the great improviser, but this... you can't do in your head. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. So Oppenheimer was a great film that was just way too long. Okay, it was it was better than Nolan's last couple of movies. Um, his last few were Dunkirk and Tenet. Tenet was his first really bad movie. That one was a bomb. No, no, no pun intended. Oppenheimer's not a bomb, but um, it was it was better than the last few movies that that Nolan has done. Uh, it wasn't one of my favorites that he's done, but he's got, uh, you know, even more than Mission Impossible. His movies are consistently amazing and interesting and deep, and they are they reward you whenever you rewatch them multiple times. So with Oppenheimer, this movie is, I mean, like all of Nolan's films, it's chaotic. You have to be constantly paying attention to follow everything that's happening. It's not impossible to follow everything happening. But you do got to You can't zone out on this movie. You have to be paying attention, or you're going to get lost. And I mean, I literally had a, I had a headache about halfway through the movie, and I just had to like s- just deal with it. It wasn't like a splitting headache. I just had it was it was weighing on me because I had to like follow all this stuff. This film has exquisite editing, exquisite music, the practical effects. I mean, they there is so much stuff that they could have CGI'd, but they didn't. You know, there's parts where like, uh. Oppenheimer, he's played by, I don't know how to say his name, Cillian Murphy or however you say it. Um, he's hes like looking around him and he's thinking about atoms and particles and molecules and all that stuff. And they kind of like form in the air around him while he's thinking. And it's not CGI though. I mean, you can tell when stuff is CGI and they got some kind of contraption that just like spun around really fast. And so it looked like a, ne- a neutron or, a, you know, a nucleus or whatever. You know, it looked like these molecule elements but it was you know it was this was practical effects and so this movie it did things there's scenes in this movie that don't look like anything i've ever seen before in a movie on a visual basis some stuff with the sound editing that like i've never heard before in a movie so i found that really impressive the writing was impeccable not the greatest not the most well-written thing in in years or whatever but maybe just after coming off of dead reckoning i was really impressed by the writing on this one this time around and like I find myself thinking about several lines from the movie, even several days afterward. You know, Dead Reckoning, I can't even remember anything that people said in that. But I can think of, like, there's a lot of great lines, a lot of quotable or thought-provoking things that they say in this movie. Nolan is an expert at telling a story. In just about every movie he does, he does this, I, I didn't notice it till this time, but this is what always happens in a Nolan film. He shows you something in the opening scene and then he keeps revisiting that opening scene throughout the film. And you don't actually know what it's all about until like the end of the movie. And then he reveals what it's all about. And I never noticed, but he does that like in about every movie he makes. He like shows you something in the opening scene, but he doesn't explain it till the last scene. And so it's, it's a, it's just, he's a master storyteller. As I said, the main character playing Oppenheimer, it's like his best acting ever. Everyone's great in this movie. My problem with it is that it's way, 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 way too long. It's three hours, three hours long. Um, the first 45 minutes of the movie, that could have just been totally cut out, <laughs> quite honestly. <laughs> you, you, the first 45 minutes of the movie are based on Oppenheimer's personal life, his, his romantic interest, his love triangle. It is, I'm just like, why does he think we're going to care about this? We want to see the bomb, you know, and, and he spends 45 minutes, it's, when Matt Damon shows up in the movie, and I check my watch, it's 45 minutes in, that's when it takes off. And from there, you get some of Nolan's best, finest directing ever. This is the highlight of the movie. For about an hour and 15 minutes, you get the whole sequence of them working with the scientists to create the bomb. And then 
the last hour of the movie is just about some legal proceedings. And one of them is about whether Oppenheimer should get to keep his security clearance. And the other one is about whether this like senator guy is going to be confirmed to the president's cabinet. And he has to have like a legal fight to, to try to get his way in there. I could not care less about those things. <laughs> like I'm watching it. I'm like, we just watched a nuclear bomb get created. And now we're going to watch these legal battles that came afterwards. Like maybe that's part of the Oppenheimer story. I could tell Nolan was trying really hard to get me to care about this. I just couldn't care about it. You know, I thought about it. I'm like, it was, it was kind of interesting from a historical perspective. I think I would have rather just read the Wikipedia article. It, it was too, it was too much to spend an hour on in the movie. And so if they would have cut off the beginning of this film and the end of this film, that middle part is pretty awesome. It would have been like one of, it would have been a fascinating film about the creation of the nuclear bomb. Okay. As it stands right now, I don't really have an interest in ever rewatching this movie. And I'm sure there's lots of cool things I would catch the second time around, the third time around, because that's how his movies always are. You always catch things like the when you rewatch a Nolan film, there's so many little details that you missed the first time. And I would love to go back and watch it again, except for the fact that I just don't want to spend another three hours of my life on that, on that movie. It's just not worth it. I don't want to spend six hours or nine hours with Oppenheimer. Three was enough. So that was a that was the unfortunate okay and i've defended long nolan movies before the dark knight rises was long it was i thought it had everything it needed it didn't have any fat i think interstellar long movie okay those were some long films but every single scene meant something you couldn't like cut any of it it was a very tightly made film and so i've defended his long movies before oppenheimer i mean they could have easily cut out everything with the love triangle they could have they could have cut out so much of the last third of the movie there is way too much. It was not necessary to tell this story. What we really wanted to know about was the bomb and testing the bomb, using the bomb. That should have been the climax and it should have been over. We didn't need all this legal stuff that came after. Um, but but one more thing I want to mention is Nolan films, they always do have a, a message and a meaning to them. There's always something they're trying to say, even his Batman movies. I mean, the, the first one was about fear. Um, the second one was about government surveillance and how far is going too far to stop great evil i mean they, these were actually movies with uh the third one was about a response to occupy wall street the the interstellar movies about like how far would you go for your child i mean these are these are movies that deal with like very real world issues and important questions and so you know you're always expecting that whenever you go into a christopher nolan flick what is oppenheimer about well, one of the questions it deals with is, uh, like I said, the last part of the movie, it, it deals with, should Oppenheimer have lost his security clearance? You know, and the movie, I think, is trying to make the case that he should get to keep it. I don't know if I'd say that. Uh, you know, the movie made a pretty good argument that he shouldn't get to keep his security clearance. Um, his enemies in the film were trying to say that he's a secret socialist. Uh, based on his portrayal in the movie, like, he doesn't seem like he's really cares about socialism principles to me. but. He was like really careless with his handling of classified information. And so there's kind of this thing of like, okay, is he working for the Russians? Could he be a Russian spy? Or is he just really loose and careless with classified info? And I almost wonder if Nolan was trying to make this film actually about Donald Trump <laughs> in a way, <laughs> because we just had this whole, I guess we still are, we're having this whole national debate about Donald Trump and his handling of classified materials. And people try to say, oh, he wanted to sell our nuclear secrets to the Russians. You know, the same thing that they accused Oppenheimer of is stuff that they're saying about Trump. And it's like, do I think Trump is a Russian spy? No. Do I think he wants to hurt America by selling our secrets to some other government? No. But does he play too fast and loose with the rules on, on protecting classified information? That Yes, I would say that that's, that would be fair to say. And and I'd say that about Oppenheimer. I'm like watching the movie. I thought, well, I don't think he should keep a security clearance. He might have helped do America do some he helped America do some good stuff, but he's kind of dangerous. He just doesn't care about the rules. And and so wouldn't it wouldn't be careful about following what you, how you handle classified material, let way too many people on the base, you know, and and some stuff got out that wasn't supposed to. So uh, I don't know if that's what Nolan was going for. It actually felt really relevant to kind of this national debate that's been going on about Trump right now. Um, but also the film deals with the question of should we have built the bomb in the first place? You see, Oppenheimer is plagued with uncertainty throughout the film about whether we should even have nuclear bombs. 
And so that's really a question he's dealing with through the last third of the film. These are these do include some of the greatest scenes in the movie. Some of the most interesting filmmaking techniques that I've ever seen. And it's coming from Nolan, who's always a trailblazer in this area. And despite it coming in a really boring stretch of the film, I love some of the effects that he did with, you know, Oppenheimer will just see bright flashes of light and some of the some of the cool things that he did by depicting his his trauma or uncertainty about whether America should have even built an atomic bomb in the first place. So there's some interesting ways that he's depicting that dilemma. But is that a new idea worth making a movie about? I mean, that's just it's an idea that's been out there for decades at this point. There's been lots of movies, stories, books dealing with this question that, you know, this idea that by creating something that would end World War II, did we also create something that will someday mean the end of humanity itself? <laughs> you know, life on planet Earth. That's not a new idea. This question has been dealt with, you know, the movie Dr. Strangelove. That it did that back in the 1960s. It did it in kind of a satirical manner, but I would say also in a deeper and more clever way. And so this movie, it asks some big questions on an existential level. But from a filmmaking perspective, this is not a, like an original issue to tackle. You know, it just it didn't feel that interesting. So that was my perspective on Oppenheimer. Um, between watching both of those films, there's one more I want to tell you about it. Between those two films, I watched one called Nefarious. This is now available to rent and watch at home. And this is somewhat a Christian movie. Um, it's, it was put out by The Blaze or some people who work for The Blaze, something like that. But um, Nefarious was a movie about demon possession. And I don't normally watch movies about that kind of stuff. But from what I heard, this, this moment is made from a distinctly Christian perspective. So I rented it. I thought, well, if it's something too spooky for me, I'll turn it off. This was, it wasn't too spooky. It was just very realistic. I'm a Christian. You know, I have a Christian perspective when it comes to demons and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So I, you know, I was going, I was going into this with a skeptical eye. I wanted to make sure it was done correctly. This movie nailed it. This, and, and from a filmmaking perspective, it blew the other two films out of the water. Okay. I'm not a person who is just going to gush about Christian movies. 90% of them are pretty pathetic. Okay. There's a few I like. I really like God's Not Dead 3. Um, there's one that's called Do You Believe? I think I have a soft spot for that one. I think The Chosen is a pretty well-made TV series, uh, a Christian TV series. For the most part, it's hard to find anything in Christian entertainment that's worth watching. And so I don't, and I, I personally, I don't care about Christian movies a whole lot. I own some of them, but I don't, they're not the kind of thing I just like to watch and rewatch and rewatch because they're not often made with great acting and writing and all that, you know, a lot of cheesy stuff. So this might not be a high bar to clear, but I'm pretty sure Nefarious is the best Christian film I've ever seen. You know, I don't know. I just I don't say that lightly. I'm trying to think of all the Christian films I'm, films I've seen before. I think Nefarious really was the best, and it's almost the horror movie in a way. But it's done in a, it's actually a very realistic um, when it comes to these issues of of what demons are capable of and the the spiritual world that we inhabit and what a demon possessed person might act like. So. Um, I, I do recommend it for that reason. It's, I think it's rated R. I'm trying to remember why it was rated R. It's, I mean, it's a Christian, it's pretty clean as far as language and all that, but it's, it's quite scary. I mean, it's an adult movie. You would not want to let a kid watch this movie. It deals with some very adult issues. So I put all that out there. This, I mean, the script was as good of a script, as good of acting as you will find in Oscar worthy films. It's about 98 minutes long. It's about, a. I don't think I've even told you what it's about. This is a movie about a therapist. And he goes in to evaluate a man who's on death row. And he has to determine whether this inmate who's on death row, whether he's like mentally competent enough that he should be held responsible for his actions. And so the inmate is claiming to be demon possessed. And as the film goes on, I mean, it's clear this is very much the case. And so probably the closest thing you'd find to this is the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Um, because during the conversation, you just got to take everything that the demon possessed man says and just flip it on its head. Okay. It's just, everything has to be seen through a lens of meaning the opposite. Okay. And so this movie is, it's extremely engaging. I was glued to the screen the whole time. I could not, you know, for about an hour and 10 minutes of it. Then for the last 30 minutes, it kind of goes into some other stuff that wasn't totally necessary to wrap the story up. Like I think really the first hour and 10 minutes of this film is probably the best hour and 10 minutes that I've seen of any movie all year long. So You've probably not heard of Nefarious. I highly recommend checking it out. It actually had something interesting to say. It actually made you ask questions and consider ideas 
that you might not necessarily have had when you were going into the movie. It brought stuff to your attention that people don't normally think about. It it has something new. Um, I've never seen a movie like Nefarious before. It actually presented new ideas. And so that's just what I miss about movies is when they actually have an interesting message. They've now really gotten it down on looking good, on sounding good, the good acting. I mean, they, they've got the great camera work in just about every movie nowadays has amazing cinematography, something that they didn't quite have figured out. You know, when you watch the older shows like Breaking Bad and these, these shows came out and they just had this beautiful cinematography and that was groundbreaking because you didn't have that on a television show in the past. Well, nowadays it's pretty common. Nowadays they've got that figured out is how to, how to set a camera down and film something to make it actually look good. And so they're, they've got that down now, but now it's like they've forgotten. Oh yeah. We still have to tell a good story. (laughs) You know, we still need a good script or this beautifully shot stuff that we, that we bring back to you. Isn't going to mean a whole lot to people if we don't have a good script, that's kind of holding it all together. So they've, I, I feel like that's what I really miss about the older blockbusters is the older blockbusters actually had an interesting message a lot of the time. Like I said about Christopher Nolan in The Dark Knight. I think Jurassic Park is probably the quintessential blockbuster, a movie that came out in the 1990s, but it's better than just about every blockbuster of nowadays. You know, Jurassic Park had some great filmmaking techniques. I saw some, I saw this trailer for some dinosaur movie that's coming out when I was watching Oppenheimer and I turned to the person next to me in the theater. I'm like, how come dinosaurs in movies today don't even look as good as they did in Jurassic Park? And that was 30 years ago. You know, so Jurassic Park is a movie that it both it looks beautiful and it has interesting ideas. And um, and one of the main ideas in that film, Jurassic Park, is, is this idea of playing God. You know, the scientists were so giddy when they realized that they could extract ancient dinosaur DNA and they could create new dinosaurs through cloning and that they actually do it. But they don't really reflect on what the consequences of this could be. And so that theme is all throughout the whole movie. Gee, the lack of humility before nature that's being displayed here um, staggers me. Well, thank you, Dr. Malcolm, but I think things are a little bit different than you and I had feared. Yeah, I know. They're a lot worse. Now, wait a second. Now, we haven't even seen the part where Anna Field... Don't don't let him talk. There's no reason. No, no, I want to hear every viewpoint. I really do. Yeah, yeah. don't you see the danger, uh, John, inherent... Uh, in what you're doing here, genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. It's hardly appropriate to start hurling generalizations. If I may, um, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done, and you, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well, I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Condors. Condors are on the verge of extinction. If I was to could not know if I was to create a flock of condors on this island, you wouldn't have anything to say. No, hold on. This isn't this is some species that was obliterated by deforestation or or the building of a dam. Dinosaurs uh, uh, had their shot and nature selected them for extinction. I simply don't understand this Luddite attitude, especially from a scientist. I mean, how can we stand in the light of discovery and Oh, what's so great about discovery? It's a violent, penetrative act that scars what it explores, what you call discovery. I call the rape of the natural world. And so it's not just a movie about dinosaurs eating people. It's about why people are getting eaten by dinosaurs. It's because of the hubris of man, of creating something and thinking that they could control it, trying to control nature, but instead you just screw it all up. And so they tried to create these dinosaurs and they're like, cool, we made dinosaurs. And then they get eaten by the dinosaurs. (laughs) You know, it's kind of funny. You know, it makes it for a good movie story, but it's a good question to ask just for our our real life. Um, And that's what I that's what I miss about the the great blockbusters of the past is they would ask these questions and they'd actually give you something to think about on the ride home. You know, after all the excitement of the Raptors is worn off, it's like, okay, well, there's actually some deeper issues to kind of consider 
here. And, you know, you watch a modern movie, a modern blockbuster, they don't have a conversation like that most of the time. Um, some of them do, but that's generally they don't. And, so, you know, you go, you go to watch some, I haven't seen The Flash, but you go to watch something like The Flash, I'm sure they don't have anything as deep as that thought anywhere in a Flash movie. So I guess that's kind of how I feel about the modern blockbuster. I don't know if movies are getting worse or if I'm just getting older, probably a mix of both. I'm just getting so bored with these movies that that look pretty, but they just don't have anything interesting to say. Um, that's like what I said about my review of the Batman on here last year. It was a beautiful movie. Looked great. Sounded great. Sounded fantastic. That score. It was a, it was brilliant. And yet it just about put me to sleep. It just didn't mean anything. I was so bored by the third act of that movie. Oppenheimer, it's better than that. You know, Nolan actually does have something to say. But even this time, it wasn't anything that we haven't already heard repeatedly over the years. He just presented it in a new way, a pretty way. But the message underneath it was was nothing thought that thought provoking just because it's been around for so long. So why he made this a three hour movie, I will never understand. <laughs> that doesn't make sense why he wanted to go three hours on this story. He was so preoccupied with whether he could stretch Oppenheimer's story into three hours. He didn't stop to think about whether he should. <laughs> so that's the Jurassic Park lesson. And maybe we should take that Jurassic Park lesson into that AI discussion. You know, that's the question Oppenheimer should have asked before he built the bomb. You know, that, that could have been a good angle to take on this nuclear origin story. It's, yes, we could do it, but should we do it? And that's the question I might ask about this AI stuff too. You know, it's, it, yeah, of course we can create it now. We can make this supercomputer, but should we create this supercomputer? Uh, and I'm just glad as, a, as someone who believes in God, I don't have to worry about all these people building AI and, and nuclear bombs and all that. I don't have to worry about people playing God because I believe there's actually a real God and he's still in control and nobody can replace him. Okay, well, before I close down later, I'll just mention this here. If you want to get in touch with me uh, at Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast, send an email to fierybutpeaceful at gmail.com. If you see some fake news, you can send it my way. If you get it to me first, I'll mention you on here for sending that to me. Stay, to, and stay in touch throughout the week at Fake News Weekly. If you like Bible studies or if you just really dig the sound of my voice, I have another podcast. It's called Cross References. And so it has nothing to do with news or current events, but it's what I consider my main podcast. I put new episodes of that one out on Mondays. And so just go look up Cross References on Apple, Spotify, wherever it is you get this podcast, you can find Cross References. And so um, some closing thoughts as we go. This, I just want to play a few different clips of things that I found interesting this week. We always like to stop for a message from our president. And so here's a message from him as he was speaking with the Israeli president here a few weeks ago. We brought Israelis and Palestinians together at a political level, and they and as I uh, affirmed, so he just kind of like it, it almost falls asleep while talking to him here with all these cameras around. He's kind of like his head kind of goes down to his chin. And he just starts mumbling and you can barely understand what he's saying. You can't understand what he's saying at all. It looks like he's just about to pass out or something. So that's great. You know, that's that's exciting. Um, hey, we haven't done this lately. What's racist for this week? Everything is racist. Well, in keeping with the theme for today, Oppenheimer is racist because this was a historical movie about white people who built the nuclear bomb. And there's some upset liberals out there that are, they're mad because there's not enough minority representation in the movie. And so this was very troubling for some people. I want to say, I want to actually throw, I want to throw my bone here. As I was watching Oppenheimer, I would have appreciated some more non-white characters in the film because this movie has like 50 different characters in it. And I, yes, it's three hours long. So you get to spend a lot of time with them, but I was having so much trouble telling all these people apart. I couldn't remember who was who. Because they were, there were so many characters and they were all white people and that just made it harder for me. So I actually, I'm going to throw them a bone. I, I'll agree with this criticism. They needed some more non-white characters in the movie. Even if it wasn't historically accurate, 
but just to help me follow the story. Okay, one more thing that was racist this week. Sleep from The Atlantic. They published this piece, The Racial Inequality of Sleep. That is actually the headline. The Racial Inequality of Sleep. The subhead by Brian Resnick, it says, Black Americans aren't sleeping as well as whites. Here's why that's a public health problem and what can be done to fix it. So sleep is now racist, according to The Atlantic. And so I'd like to close with this one story that you probably almost certainly did not hear about this week. Um, Remember fake news commandment number five, which I detail all 10 of my 10 commandments of fake news. That's episode number 50. And fake news commandment number five is this. They lie just as much by what they don't tell you as they do by what they do tell you. Okay, they lie just as much by what they don't tell you as they do by what they do tell you. And so I want you to remember that as you hear about this new story. This is mind-blowing what you did not hear about this week. So thank you to a Twitter account called End Wokeness. They reported this. Fargo officer Zach Robinson likely prevented a deadly terror attack last weekend. He killed Mohammed Barakat, who was armed with a grenade and 1,800 rounds of ammo. Barakat shot a bunch of cops and was likely headed for the annual street fair. Officer Robinson shot him dead. Unfortunately, 23-year-old officer Jake Wallen was killed during the attack. Okay, so there was a Muslim guy, Mohammed Barakat. He had a grenade and nearly 2,000 rounds of ammunition. He had three semi-automatic rifles. He had four handguns with at least 10 magazines. He was walking up to this, or he was on his way to, a, to, the, to the local fair, almost certainly to shoot it up and kill as many people as possible. And he got intercepted by the police, and they ended up, they, they neutralized him. He took one cop with him, unfortunately. And according to Inwokeness, he shot several police officers. Why did you not hear about this story? Okay? Why have you, why is it, I'm most, I'm probably, I'm assuming the first person you've heard about this from, it happened in Fargo, North Dakota. Why didn't you hear about this story? I'll tell you why, because this story kills all the Democrat narratives. Okay, for example, yes, you got this guy heavily armed, semi-auto rifle, 2,000 rounds of ammunition. Normally, this is when they would start rolling out all the talking points about gun control, right? Except he also had a grenade. And grenades have been illegal for Americans to own since 1968. So that ruins the gun control argument. Because if, the, if this guy is willing to break the gr- grenade control laws, obviously he would break the gun control laws. So it's, it just kind of shoots that in the... Well, that's a, that's a bad pun. Or that's a no pun intended right here on that. But that just kind of shoots that argument in the foot whenever... Yeah, you can complain about him having access to the guns all you want, but he also had a grenade. Now you can't make the gun control argument it actually proves the conservative case there. Bad guys are going to get a hold of the weapons, whether we disarm ourselves or not. They're still going to get a hold of weapons one way or another, especially when you got the southern border wide open. You know, we'll come back to, to that idea. Um, it, I, I think I've told this story before that uh, one time I was walking into last December, my son, he's, this is when he was three, and we were walking into a government facility. It was like a national park, and they had the no guns allowed sign up on like a sticker on the door. And so as we're walking in, my three-year-old points at the sign and he understands what the sign is trying to say. It is saying no guns because he sees a picture of the gun icon with the like cancel symbol over it. And so to him, a gun is called a doo-doo because that's the sound that guns make in in his three-year-old mind. They go doo-doo, doo-doo. So he thinks this is called a doo-doo and he points at the sign and he asks me, why did they say no doo-doos at this place? And I said to him, well, and even though I'm talking to my three-year-old, I felt kind of stupid saying this even to him. <laughs> I said, well, they don't want bad guys to bring doo-doos to this place. And he says, but bad guys don't listen, <laughs> which is 100% the truth. Bad guys don't listen. They don't care if you put up a little sign with a sticker on it that says, don't bring your guns here. That stops the good guys from bringing the guns in here. The bad guys are not going to care what a sign says. So it's just the dumbest way to prevent mass shootings, (laughs) which is what they're trying to do with that little sticker. That's the dumbest way to do it because bad guys don't listen. My three-year-old understood that. 
He's four now, but I think he'd still get it. <laughs> but these politicians in Washington, D.C., they don't get that. And so this story comes out. And yes, Americans are not allowed to own a grenade, but somehow this Muhammad got a hold of a grenade. Okay? Bad guys don't listen. If he would get a grenade, he will get a hold of guns. This proves the conservative case. This is why you haven't heard about this in the news. Okay? Hey, where did this grenade and all these guns come from? Could they have come from our wide open border? That might be worth checking into. <laughs> Something that I'm sure our government and the news media is not interested in checking into. But who dropped the ball on this one? How did this guy get a hold of a grenade? And I'm, I'm curious how he was in the country in the first place. Maybe he was here legally. If he got, I don't know if he could get all the way from the southern border all the way up to North Dakota, but maybe he did. So, but someone hopefully checks into that. This also isn't making the news because of the identity of the shooter, as well as the victims, but let's start with the shooter. It's a man named Muhammad. So he's likely a Muslim. This would be a Muslim terrorist. Um, there's two fairs going on in Fargo that day. This terrorist was surely on his way to them, most likely to try to shoot up as many people as possible, try to kill as many people as he could with his 2,000 rounds of ammo and his grenade. So when the police intercepted him before he got there, he shot the cops. He killed one of them. Then he was taken out by another. We had a Muslim terror attack in our own nation last week. You probably didn't even hear about it. You also didn't hear about it because of the identities, not just of the shooter, but of the victims and the hero. This was white cops getting shot and killed. This is not a story the media cares to tell. A white hero cop neutralizes a threat, but we don't want to see stories about white heroes in this country. So you didn't even hear about this on the nightly news. Okay, so. I find this all pretty sickening. I'm not going to end the show today with I'm getting <laughs> upset here talking about this. I'm not going to go on with the sarcastic comments and all that. This story doesn't make me feel sarcastic. It makes me feel sad. It makes me feel angry. It makes me angry at the media that they didn't even report on this when this is a newsworthy event. Here's what CNN was reporting on last weekend. OK, let me pull this up on my phone here. Here's what CNN actually ran a story about. It says. Uh, Lisbeth Collart was in the middle of driving a camper van across North America with her long-term boyfriend when she met and fell for another man. The new couple ended up exploring the world together. And then that's, that was the tweet. The headline of the story says she broke up with her boyfriend and moved in with a man that she'd known for three weeks. Here's why. And so you read this story. I didn't read it. I actually clicked on the article. This probably would have taken 20 minutes to read. Someone spent like a week typing up this story about this girl who met some guy and she broke up with her boyfriend because she liked this new guy better. And she, she, I don't know she has bad judgment or whatever. <laughs> she apparently she's been with him for like 20 years. I skimmed the article because I'm like, why are they even writing about this? Some random girl, she's not famous for anything, breaks up with her boyfriend and goes with this other guy. That's a news story on CNN. Like these weren't these weren't even celebrities or anything. Just random person meets other random person, likes him better than her other boyfriend, who's a random person. And now they lived happily ever after. Who cares? This is what CNN wants to tell you about when they're not reporting on the terror attack that happened in North Dakota. So it makes me mad at the media whenever I when I see all this stuff. It makes me sad for the family of this Jake Wallen. He was the police officer who was killed in the shootout with this terrorist. And so... um I'm sorry, you know, my heart goes out to them, prayers to them. And I'm just sorry that this, I shouldn't call him just a victim. He was a hero too. He was killed in the line of duty, protecting the people of Fargo, North Dakota. And so today I'm not going to end with my theme song and all that. I would like to end with, um, I want to play a clip that the Fargo police department posted as a tribute to him. And I'm just going to end by sharing that with you. This is a series of clips of Jake Wallen from his time uh, with what I believe is the National Guard. And then also there's pictures of him receiving various police commendations and doing an interview with them. And so the Fargo PD shared this on their Facebook page. And I'm going to share that with you as we go today. This has been Luke Taylor. I appreciate you tuning in to Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. Throughout my, my entire life, I've always wanted to work in some sort of position that had purpose behind my job and police officer is always what kind of came to me. I've tried other careers, but I came right back into law enforcement as a career path I wanted to go through. Hi, I'm Jake Walleen. I'm from St. Michael, Albertville, Minnesota. 
and I've been to more countries than I have been states. My desire to serve, it comes directly from the want to have purpose behind my job each and every day. I don't want to be sitting in an office wondering why I'm here every day. I want to be out, I want to be doing something that I can tell myself at the end of the day I made a difference somehow.